Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Mentorship's an important aspect of modern education, especially in advanced settings like medicine. However, what to look for in a mentor, how to find one, and what to expect from that relationship might not always be clear to the medical student or even the clinical preceptor. Today, I'm honored to have on Dr. David Rogers, a professor of surgery and pediatrics, senior associate dean of faculty affairs and professional development, and the chief wellness officer in the School of Medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Rogers, nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Chase. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad that you could join today and give some of your insights. I listened to a previous interview that you did regarding mentorship and the importance of it and possibly the growing importance of it with the changing academic environment right now. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background in education. Yeah, so I'm a pediatric general surgeon. So like most subspecialists, I you know trained until my mid-30s, finished my training in 1994, and then doing bench research and just found out that my passion was really in education. What I really like about teaching medical students and residents is just it involves helping people by giving them some knowledge or showing them how to do something better or solve a problem. And I just really love that moment sort of aha moment that people have when they realize, wow, this is just a better way to do things. So what I realized after I knew that I loved that interaction was I really didn't know anything about effective teaching. Despite my training until my mid-30s, you know, I have never had any preparation for that part of my role. So I began to take courses and ultimately got a master's degree in the health professions education just because I felt like I needed to do this part of my role, you know, with the same excellence as I was trying to do my clinical work. So I've been involved now, you know, in doing some research and helping other people develop and be better teachers and educational leaders. And now I get to have this organizational opportunity to try to, you know, do that at an organizational level. But I still really love the teaching and I particularly love getting to the medical students early in their clinical exposure where things are really still sort of fresh and exciting. And just seeing them, you know, really get excited. You really begin to enjoy the medical students' enthusiasm. That actually has become a very important thing to me to kind of re-energize me every year. So it's really a reciprocal relationship there. The students' energy can feed into the faculty, the preceptor, and vice versa. I know a lot of students will say, this particular preceptor, this instructor that was very energetic, was very informative. You could tell that they loved their job, gave a better learning experience for them. So seems both sides can feed from this really positive feedback loop in a properly set up and organized educational environment. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think medical students should take pride in the fact that they, they are bringing that positive part to it. You know, one of the impacts that I've observed with the introduction of the electronic health record is I feel like the students have been pushed out. So they're less participants than they are observers. That's not an entirely bad thing. A lot of the work that we did before as students wasn't terribly wonderful work, but you did feel like you were an integral part of the team. So I think students should not underestimate that they're bringing value to the circumstance, including this value to me. But also, I think as faculty, we forget just how fortunate we are to deal with people that are very much in the top 
part of the population on every attribute that you could measure. So whether it's intelligence or passion or compassion or motivation, really to me, we have a luxury as medical teachers that we're dealing with a very accomplished set of people. And I think sometimes we don't get the positive effect of interacting because we don't stop and say to the students, what do you think? I never forget a faculty that did take the time to talk to a medical student and say, so what have you done that's interesting in life? And it turned out the student had climbed Mount Everest. And the person's like, wow, you know, that's just amazing. We forget that the students are amazing people. Very unique and highly motivated individuals, I agree. So you started with teaching and getting into your master's degree, learning more about this clinical education setting. And I know that mentorship in particular has been a pathway that's really important to you. Would you be able to go into a little bit more about why that's important to you personally and why you think it might be important to the rest of us in academic medicine? So when I came into my faculty, my dean's office role, my job is to try to help faculty be successful. And so I began to think about what are proven ways that can help people be successful in whatever part of academic medicine they can do. And I was really challenged by a group of faculty who were really interested in mentorship. And as I began to listen to their conversation and begin to read the literature, there's a robust set of literature that having mentors is really truly a game changer for academic physicians and researchers, that there's robust literature that just shows it really changes the trajectory of your career in a very positive way. It's a thing that's a social resource. So if we can get everybody to participate, you don't need giant programs or a lot of extra financial resources because we can all be involved in doing this. But the science around the impact of mentorship is quite compelling uh, when you take it in the aggregate. So it was really the original motivation was to help and try to do that in a responsible way with stewardship. But what really convinced me was the literature because it's really compelling for any group that you would want to study. It seems like mentorship is a topic I've been hearing a lot more about in medicine, all the way up to even for attendees having mentors come in and show them just how to make slight improvements. We can all constantly improve. And I think at least discussions I've been having recently, especially in the last few months where the step one pass fail information's come out, sounds like a lot more of this type of clinical mentorship is going to be integral to a student's education in total. Yeah, I think mentors are particularly helpful when you're in transitional points. And so I think that's part of what I've learned is I had a very traditional notion of mentorship. And this was common, you know, when I was a student and a resident, that the idea of a mentor is to have one person who is what you want to be. And you were advised to attach yourself to them. And they played a role of advising you, but also advocating for you and helping you and I think that as our population has become somewhat more diverse, that it's very difficult. And it was for me. When I started my academic career, I had identified education as being my area of focus. And that was fairly new at that point in time. And so well-meaning people told me, man, that's a dead end, you know, that nobody does that. Nobody as an academic, yeah, you can be a good teacher, but it's not a good idea to have teaching and education as your academic focus. And so I had to reach out outside of my immediate sphere to ask people. I could see that people were doing it, a few people. And so I had to reach out. And then those people were very helpful in helping me, you know, in terms of saying, here's a step, here's another program. So that's just my own example of you have to kind of expand your idea of mentorship. It can't be 
a person with whom you're having face-to-face meetings. And I think this generation of medical students, you know, what the advantages you have is that you're thinking you're more open as a group to the idea of a social groups and of getting help and asking for help. You know, I'm at the end of the boomers and unfortunately we were much more individualistic and, you know, I can do this on my own. And the literature does not support that. There are certainly exceptional people that can do it all on their own. But I think to your point, you know, particularly in the pandemic, their USMLE is modifying their tests and they're canceling things. And so this is a great time to have access to lots of people to get advice because it's just so chaotic right now. You really have to reach out to an entire group of people. Yes, the current pandemic is definitely making it difficult. A lot of students, even a lot of colleagues that I've spoken to, either not going in to their designated hospitals at all or really limited on the number of hours they're getting every week and every month. So there has to be some sort of way to really accommodate the amount of education that we require on a constant basis when something like this happens. So I think mentorship, as you've been describing, sounds like a great, more personalized communication network that these students and educators can have inside and outside, potentially, of the academic setting and continue their education through all the highs and lows of society. That's, the, to me, the model that I really advocate for is that it's a team mentorship, or some people call it mentoring constellations. And I think reaching out to involve people your own age. If I was a medical student, I would be looking to more advanced students or even residents saying, what do you think? How should this work? Reach out to people at different points, people with different perspectives. The world was already complicated and certainly it's more complicated now. And I think getting multiple inputs. Now that what you have to accept of that is you're going to get different opinions. And so you are going to have to say, okay, I'm getting multiple different opinions. But this seems to be the general theme. You know, this seems to be advice that works for me. And so you have to accept the degree of uncertainty. The truth is anybody who can predict for you the next three to six months with certainty, I wouldn't pay much attention to those people because I just don't believe it. It's so chaotic right now. It's very difficult to know. But there are some, you know, durable things that you can, you know, continue to reach out to people. So for an example, for medical students, I always tell them that when you're doing your interviews for residency, if you need to cancel an interview, you need to let the program know because these specialty groups are small. They're small worlds, actually. And so you don't want to sort of behave unprofessionally with one program because that word speeds around and spreads much more quickly and broadly than you would imagine. So you need to be aware that you're interacting with a network of people. Unless somebody gives you that advice, then how are you going to know? The same reason I always tell medical students to write a thank you note or email back to the program where you've interviewed. I've been in enough ranking meetings for residencies to see people go up and down the list from the program standpoint based on an express interest. So if you don't express an interest back to the program, then you'll probably lose some of your position on their rank list. The other thing is, is that it causes you to have to think about the program maybe more and say, what is it that I liked about this program? What did impress me? And so just that discipline of doing it, it's a rare thing anymore for people to take the time to do that. So that's why I give that advice. But again, you're only going to hopefully go through the residency application process 
one time. And it's very different for applying for your first job. So you have to get to people who have been through the process recently and say, what do you think in terms of getting that advice? Yeah, that type of advice can be very difficult. It seems like there's almost a cutoff once a student hits residency and now they're a doctor. There's a huge gap between the medical student side and then the residency attending actual physician side when it comes to dissemination of information. But I did want to ask a few questions regarding, let's say, some instructors or current or potential future preceptors are listening to this podcast, and maybe they're looking for some more information on models of mentorship or how to get more information on this. I know you mentioned mentoring constellations as one model. Are there other recommendations that you would have for anyone listening to this podcast? You know, there's lots of academic literature and you can look at different models. The model I like is uh, the team mentorship. So part of the the team is really a three-member team. So this is a very senior person because, and this is a person that I would say, hey, can we just meet twice a year and I can talk about my career? They're going to have the longest view of it. And they also can play a role of advocating for you to get, you know, important memberships and that sort of thing. And then a peer mentor is someone that's just a little bit ahead of you. So someone that really is just having your process. And I think for medical students, this is really important. So, you know, a second year can help a first year, a third year can help a second year. There's lots of transitions in medical school that having somebody that, you know, you're connected to that's just a little bit ahead can be very helpful. And then kind of a mid-career person. And then some specialty mentors For example, if you identify in a certain way, you may want to reach out to someone who has those specific concerns. If you're underrepresented minority and you're going to be the first or one of the very first in a group, you may want to reach out to someone else in that group and say, you know, I know you're not in this specialty, but can you help me anticipate and understand some of what's happening to me? And that applies, you know, anytime that you're not in the majority group. And then I think you need to kind of reconsider your team composition from time to time. And now I need to think about a different person, a person that, you know, maybe has a different perspective. I think you always want to, you know, express gratitude. But again, this peer mentoring ship, I think, at least for me as a medical student, I just felt sort of perpetually ignorant. So I always felt like I don't have anything to offer this. And I remember as a junior Going through the junior year and going from rotation to rotation, you always felt unbalanced because you would just sort of be getting pediatrics down and then you would switch to psychiatry and it was very different. Then you would switch to OBGYN and it was just so different. You always felt kind of unbalanced. But then I remember in the beginning of my senior year, seeing the new juniors coming in and realizing I did learn a lot. I didn't necessarily learn stuff in the curriculum, but I kind of learned how medicine worked. I remember the first time they said, you're taking call. And I'm like, that's great. What is that? And they're like, you spend the night in the hospital. I'm like, that's just so weird. You know, who would do that? And so all those sort of adaptive, practical things, I think that's a big part of what the model is expressed in different ways. And so people can just, you know, do a PubMed search on the idea of mentoring teams. You'll see a fair amount of, you know, different articles that talk about it. And certainly people have different ideas And some of it depends on your need. I don't need 100 people to talk to. You know, I just need a few people that I respect. But other people want to talk to many, many people. So some of that's very much a personal preference. And I also wouldn't hesitate if someone is not connecting with you. If you're not finding the advice helpful, then, you know, you don't have to, like, formally break up with them. But I just basically 
express gratitude for what they've done and kind of try to make sure your pool of people is relevant to your situation. I love that you pointed out the academic silos. Even in medicine, we are really segregated by specialty and by group. And sometimes it can be difficult to understand the overlap from one to the other. And especially, like you said, going from one rotation or specialty to another one, it's disconcerting. Completely thrown off guard. It is not at all what I was just doing two days ago. Now I'm doing this new rotation. For students, that can definitely be an obstacle and something for preceptors to be aware of and trying to make that transition easier for incoming students, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. I mean, my sense of it is that in the professional, you know, like I always thought it was a bit unfair as a medical student because people were asking you things that were questions within their expertise. And yet all the stuff you had learned in medical school, no one was ever asking you, hey, can you sketch out the Krebs cycle or let's review the anatomy of the forearm. So they never ask you about stuff that you were Doing. Now, obviously, I went to medical school in a different era where we did things more by the traditional disciplines. So hopefully we're giving you knowledge that's more accessible. But I remember, you know, my first patient with a pneumonia, and I was like, look, I know a lot about lungs. I know a lot about the physiology of respiration. I know about bacteria. I know about antibiotics. I have no idea how to treat community-acquired pneumonia. And so some of the clinical exposure is scaffolding your knowledge. So it's relevant to patient problems. But I think it's a fair point to say preceptors just need to be a little bit more patient and understanding. And it changes. I was a clerkship director for many years. And the first clerkship is quite different than the last clerkship because by the time you're doing the last clerkship, you kind of understand the system. The first clerkship group is trying to figure out content, but they're also trying to figure out like how does this even work? And that's where like having juniors come and maybe do a talk, a practical talk to the sophomores before they really start in the third year is a helpful or have seniors come and talk about that year. It has its own unique stresses. My school was also discipline-based, so I understand the potential limitations in that teaching model. For some other preceptors or mentors or potential mentors, they might have a general idea or maybe they've read some literature but sometimes putting it into practice or even developing your skill to a higher level can be difficult. So do you have any advice or resources for those that would really like to better their learning skills, their mentoring skills? Yeah, so there's some good systematic reviews and it talks about all the things that mentors do. And the general conclusion is you have to have as a core principle, your desire to want to help the person, your protege or your mentee. And then what you do to me has to be worked out. I strongly believe that the mentee, and I think there's evidence to support this, that if the mentee drives the the conversation, everybody's happier. So I think I would coach a mentee and say, look, you need to set up these meetings. I want you to establish the agenda. And then I'm just going to try to share with you my opinions or I'll connect you with people that, you know, maybe have an expertise or knowledge that you're seeking. And I think advocacy or that kind of what they so-called medical ethic of beneficence. You know, in other words, what I want to do for you is to do well. And that's my commitment. And then I think some transparency around, this is my own experience and this is my mistake. Many times tell younger faculty that I try to be fairly transparent about my own mistakes because I say I'm doing that with the hope that you won't repeat them. At least have make your own mistakes. Don't make mine over and over again. And so I think sharing things that I've done that were good, sharing mistakes that I've made, to me, that's how we advance uh, what we're doing. 
But there's lots of good mentoring programs. You know, here at UAB, we have some that are primarily for research mentors. That's probably the best developed models is in research. And that seems to be more accepted in their culture. And I think that's something the current generation could do to improve medicine would be to have the clinicians be more accepting of mentorship throughout. I think we sometimes get in our own way with our individualism. Wellness, you know, social resources are important in wellness. So having a group of people that are trying to help you and advise you and support you is really important. Clinical preceptors are busy professionals as is, and those wishing to give back to the academic community can be overburdened by scheduling and paperwork. With the Find a Rotation platform, physicians looking to precept students can register for their free account, control calendar availabilities, set preferences, and be done. Our system automates and simplifies much of the process. Register for your free account now by visiting findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. So is that something that maybe junior faculty versus senior faculty should be aware of as far as where to get the information, but also not being too rigid in sort of the old cast style of doing it? And the role changes with different people. That's what I found. Now I've had the advantage of mentoring people through the full range of adulthood. And you treat a mid-career faculty member quite differently. And in you know, my stage, a very real need is for senior faculty. When should they retire? And so there's an active conversation. So we really need mentors, even as we're contemplating the end of our careers, because many people's identities are caught up in that. So, you know, a note I would make for medical students is really important in these career transitions to have advisors and mentors to, you know, help you. Those transitions to me are very stressful. And the one you mentioned from medical student to resident to me is the most stressful transition because you go from you know, being an observer to being an active participant is pretty unsettling when you start. So just be ready for that. I feel like the trauma of med school in residency is like, I'm just going to forget the last couple of years of my life. So there's a a bigger divide there possibly. So if students are looking for more mentorship relationships, are there any best practices for where to find them or how to develop them in a healthy manner? I would make it kind of informal. So in other words, with a peer, I might say, hey, you know, would you mind just if I touch base with you to get some practical advice or it might be better to kind of ease into the relationship without declaring it. Now, for scientists, career mentor, which is that third part of the team, the more traditional mentor. And there actually are mentoring formal relationships that you develop that may be helpful there. Again, with the more senior people, I think many of them are so busy that if you said, would you be my mentor, they might refuse you just because they think you're going to be paying them a lot. So I might not even use that word with a senior person. I might say, hey, would you mind if I just, you know, touch base with you a couple times a year to figure out like where my career is going. For medical students, you're going to, you know, need to be getting advice about the residency transition, I think most of us would expect that'll be a fairly close-knit relationship if you kind of navigate through that phase. And I didn't recognize it for what it was at the time. But the first time I really would identify having a mentor is when I was a student looking for residencies and I had a chief resident who took a particular interest in me and who was enormously helpful in me thinking about my rank list and where should I apply and 
what was a good strategy for applying. And I've seen students suffer because they're good students, but they have a poorly calibrated plan around residency applications. So I think that relationship is a little different and one that you would expect to be fairly active. And then once you match, you may want to keep in touch with that person, but the relationship would change. Well, you bring up a good point there. If the physician mentors are potentially overburdened already, and I know this is often the case, even in some that I contact for interviews on the show and in other aspects, non-academic aspects, they're just so busy, especially in hectic times, such as right now with the pandemic going on. So this is probably a good opportunity maybe for students to also be mentors. And I guess, how would one student find another? Is there a good platform for this? Or maybe there should be one that we could develop sometime in the future to really lessen the burden on physicians and also give students that peer mentorship opportunity and experience. Yeah, I would think uh, any students who were listening could just go to their student affairs dean or their educational dean and say, I'd really like to just set up a network. And I think that this generation is much more facile with social media. And you might even use that as a platform to say, hey, we're wanting to just kind of give each other practical advice. To have a good mentor, it requires a personal commitment on the part of that mentor. And so I do think at some point it becomes a personal commitment, you know, connection that you have with people. So I think for students, I would say you need to be respectful, maybe even compassionate that people are pretty burdened generally. And certainly the pandemic has made that more difficult, but balance that with a little bit of general persistence. In other words, to say to people, hey, you know, I could really use your time and I'll come prepared. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you to kind of spoon feed me in this. I'm going to come really prepared. I think you then you have to build trust where the mentor has to see that, okay, this is a good use of my time. I do some mentoring for people that are interested in surgical education research. And my philosophy is if I've kind of reached out to you a couple of times and you're not responding, then I'm just going to move on. I've got other people I can help and my resources of time that has to be managed. So that would be my advice for students. And then I think expressing gratitude Our motivations are good, but it's nice to see that it was noticed, that it was appreciated. And you'll find that, and I have had some of these relationships, if you have a really good mentoring relationship, those people actually become colleagues and friends. And I've been around enough to have people that were medical students ultimately become colleagues, you know, surgical colleagues. And so that's a lot of fun if you get to have a career long enough to see that transition. It's always funny because you remember them back when they were thrashing about here they show up and I'll figure out, I'll end up working for one of them someday. So trying to be kind to the people coming behind you. Yeah, I guess watching someone grow up, whether it be a family member growing through the ages or someone in their academic career from the infancy of that to fully developing, it's probably interesting to watch. Maybe that is a, an opportunity I'll have someday. And an interesting point, now that we're having this conversation, thinking about it, I have a Facebook group for my other podcast that allows students to come on and share medical mnemonics and learning techniques. Maybe just a simple Facebook group would be a starting point anyway for especially students that are in smaller schools, such as the one I came from, that don't really have a lot of these opportunities internally to come on and share their experiences to each other. I also would say to the medical students, again, we, I don't know exactly, strip away your adult features in medical school. And so I do think there's an opportunity for people particularly passionate about mentoring to mentor undergrads or high school students. I mean, don't forget that you've competed into a very valuable place in society and you have things to offer to people. 
mean, for some people, they have the same anxiety about trying to get a medical school that you're probably beginning to develop about getting into residency. And so I think, you know, use some of that motivation to reach out to other people and just give advice. Of course, in the pandemic, we've all become Zoom friendly, which is fine, but I still prefer to meet with people, although I've done mentoring remotely. And in fact, my first research mentor I worked with a year before I met him, and then I was startled that he was quite a bit younger than I was. So I thought that was funny that I had just been accepting his direction. Actually, meeting him would have gotten in my way because I would have said, hey, man, you're a lot junior to me. So it probably would have inhibited my learning from a person who had a lot to say. So I think there's a plus and minus to doing it remotely or via social media. But for people who don't have it, I think your platform could be a really good way to help people who don't have any other option. Agreed. Body language and personal interaction can tell you a lot, but I think I might have to start a new group once we get off the call here. Yeah, there you go. One more thing for students here that might be looking for a mentorship experience, but there can be some difficult mentoring experiences and relationships. There can be some maybe unhealthy ones. And what are some things to be aware of and how to approach them or get out of them or what's the best advice? Yeah. So in the mentoring team is the senior mentor, kind of the career mentor and the peer mentoring. I think the majority experience that medical students would have would be that people just aren't helpful or aren't responsive. And in those cases, then I think you just have to accept that and try to identify somebody who will. There's a little bit of literature about dysfunctional relationships. Most of that occurs with a career mentor that you're working with closely, for example, to do research or those sort of things. So there can be things like misappropriation of ideas or just basically taking credit for other people's work. Unfortunately, this situation with power differential, and so there's opportunities for sexual harassment or misconduct. So it can be very distressing because you feel a little bit like you're stuck. You're in this relationship, you need this person, and yet you try to do the things that you can do in those circumstances and tell people, for example, if they make some sort of romantic approach and say, I'm not interested in that. If it persists, then I think you have to separate from that. Depending on the nature of it, you might need to report it because just because you're in a mentoring relationship doesn't give a person in the more powerful position license to basically uh, abuse that relationship. So that I don't think would happen so much for medical students getting career advice, but certainly you'd want to pay attention to that and report it if it does. Certainly protect your own well-being by separating from that person in that circumstance. The more common, another one you'll see is occasionally the mentee is so valuable to the mentor that they're kind of unwilling to let them go. And that's more commonly described in a career mentoring relationship. You know, people have to be left alone to develop uh, themselves independently. So that's another reason to have a mentoring team is if you have a question like this seems weird, then go to another one of the members of your team and say, you know, hey, what this person, you know, wants me to go out and have dinner with them. Is it, this seems weird to me. And that's where having a peer mentor could help you say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Or yeah, that sounds, you know, how it works or that's okay in the certain circumstances. So that would be my advice about safeguarding yourself in this. Sounds like very good advice, especially with the Me Too movements being still relatively new and just having someone to talk to and bounce ideas off and see where you should go next. What is appropriate? What's a good next step? Who do you talk to under certain situations? And having someone that can validate your story too, if it needs to go that way, is never a bad idea. So completely agree. 
Yeah, the Me Too reference is interesting. One of the challenges that we're seeing is that senior male mentors are reluctant to mentor younger women colleagues and trainees because of concerns. And we need to do better about that. We need to equip men and women with an understanding of what is appropriate behavior and what is not, because it will be a loss to younger women if they don't have access you know, to the right senior people. So I think the wrong response for senior men, particularly, although it can apply to women as well, just to withdraw from doing it, I think more likely, and some of it, you know, is evolving. So the idea of microaggression. And so I think those of us who, you know, care for people don't want to offend anybody, but this is a great opportunity to kind of mutually develop, you know, help me understand if I have a violation around that to say that's an aggression. I feel bad when you say that for this reason, that would help us all develop. I think it'll be a loss for women and for underrepresented minorities if everybody just gets you know so concerned that they withdraw. Agreed. And medicine is a leader in many ways and industries, and this is potentially another way that we can lead other industries as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So about you, a few last minute questions here. I'm really curious to know, what is one of the biggest changes that you hope to see in academic medicine in the next couple of years? I think the big changes I would like to see is a change in our culture so that we do take care of each other better. There's been some interesting work done in professionalism. And we say as physicians that caring for our colleague is a central value in our system. And yet, I think we have a ways to go before people really embrace that as part of our professional ethos. So I'm hopeful that I can start, but it will probably be your generation or beyond that really gets us to the point of saying, I really do want to help my colleagues. I think that we've seen more of that in the pandemic that people have certainly had a lot of concern about the front line. And I think maybe that needs to be a lesson that we learn uh, going forward to be less individualistic. So I've already seen one because I've seen teaching and education become a completely accepted academic pursuit, but that's been a lot of fun uh, and good for me because I think the people advised me that was a mistake were probably right, but I just got to see the world change. So I think for your group, uh, for the people maybe immediately ahead of you and behind you, is we have to get a better balance of creating systems that take into account people and then caring for each other in a more significant way. Very true. We're seeing that a lot right now. And it's a good change. I think it's the healthy aspect of social media too. There's so many negative aspects, but it can be used for a lot of good too sometimes. Do you have any interesting stories in education or mentorship that you would like to share? I think I've alluded to the two. So, you know, my notion of mentorship is it would be somebody who was what I wanted to be and I didn't find those people. And so as I began to think about what a mentors do, I realized that actually all along the way, every time I thought I was having individual success, if I was honest, it's because somebody gave me a little bit of a hand up, pointed me in the right direction, helped me gave me maybe feedback that was hard to hear. Now I look at my career and I realize I've been helped all along the way, which makes me even more committed to the idea of trying to help people that are behind me. So the two stories, the one is the chief resident who really stepped up in a way that I didn't understand at the time and really pushed hard for me and advocated for me and advised me. That was a remarkable experience. And then what I had to learn first or my research mentor that was younger than me. And I had to wrap my head around at that point in my career that I can learn things from younger people. 
And even when I moved here, I came into a group of pediatric surgeons that were doing some really cutting edge technology. So I had to really humble myself and learn things from people that they weren't actually, but they could have been my students and my residents. So as I look at my whole career, that's part of my passion around this topic is just realizing I probably have had my own constellation of mentors, if I'm fair, of people that have touched my life in really positive ways. There's only too many instances that have been too powerful just to pick one. Well, I think your stories are very valuable and they give a lot of insights to students and preceptors or future preceptors as far as things to look at now and maybe start preparing for some resources to use. There's a lot of value in what you've shared with us today. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. So Dr. David Rogers, thank you so much for sharing your valuable experiences with us. Thanks, Chase. It's been my privilege and I hope the community of listeners will find out something that's good toward mentorship and just go and start doing something. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.